Well, good morning, church. It is a pleasure for us to sing that song that's going to have a lot of relevance for what we're going to talk about later on here in Joshua chapter 2 of what happens when the word is meant to drive you to the rock that alone is able to deliver the rock who is our refuge, Christ Jesus himself. So I just want to thank you so much uh, this morning. I want to just echo what uh, Mike had said here about just your prayers right now for the search process. I'm excited that that has begun. Just been praying for the, the man that the Lord already knows who's going to be eventually filling this pulpit for us. And I'm very grateful to be a part of that process and just, again, covet your prayers as we uh, venture through that together as a church family. Uh, it's been said that it often feels a little bit like a dating process, and it is a bit of an awkward thing, uh, but it is a good and right and appropriate thing. And so we just echo your prayers as you join along with us. And uh, as I was just thinking about uh, staff and personnel, it made me uh, remember that this week you also received an email uh, announcement about another role that the Lord has been gracious to fill here, which is our Director of Outreach and Discipleship, which is going to give some focus to our Goodfield uh, ministry. And that individual is actually here this morning. So Seth, would you wave your hand real quick? So Seth Schwarzendruber over here. Many of you know Seth. Seth has been an intern here before, but is finishing up his last year of Southern Seminary. He and his wife, Abby, are going to be moving back to the area here in a few weeks, and we are excited for them to join us. So after the service, if you have a few moments to go over and welcome Seth and Abby, uh, you're going to see them a lot more around here and heavily involved in ministry, and we're excited for that. But this morning, we are turning our attention to Joshua chapter 2. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open this morning to Joshua chapter 2. We have two of our best-looking men in church who are going to be making their way to the back, so raise your hand so they can put a Bible in your hand if you need one. Uh, they'll make sure that you can follow along with us this morning as we venture into Joshua chapter 2. And as you're doing so, just want to remind you, we've spent really the last two weeks uh, laying the foundation for this book. And I hope that after two weeks, you are starting to see how Joshua is much more than a book about conquest and war, that Joshua is a book about faith about trusting God as you continue to navigate life moving forward, even with all of its roadblocks, all of its hurdles, all of its opposition, all of its challenges. And today, we, alongside the Israelites, are going to be given another strong reminder of why our great God can be trusted no matter where life takes us. So if you're there already, Joshua chapter 2, I'm going to invite you to stand one more time in honor of the public reading of God's word as we read from Joshua chapter 2. And for the sake of time, we're not going to hit everything here, but we are going to start in verse 1 and read down through verse 15 and then jump down to verse 22. So I'll help you navigate that. Joshua chapter 2, starting in verse 1, and Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab saying, bring out the men who have come to you who entered your house for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them and said, true, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. 
And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords and gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. And before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came up out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then... Please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Verse 22, they departed and went into the hills and remained there three days until the pursuers returned. The pursuers searched out all along the way and found nothing. Then the two men returned. They came down from the hills and passed over and came to Joshua, the son of Nun, and they told him all that had happened to them. And they said to Joshua, truly, the Lord has given all the land into our hands and also all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. You may be seated and let's pray now as we ask for God's favor on our time of study this morning. Father, we do now ask for your favor on our time. This is a marvelous, wonderful text that is a testimony of your both grace and your sovereignty. And it would just be my prayer now that you would help us to see your sovereign hand in every detail that, Lord, our people would walk away with a higher trust and assurance in your goodness, and that for those, Lord, who are even here this morning who have not yet put their trust in you, they might see the hope that you offer to them. For, Lord, you are a God of grace, and you offer salvation and deliverance to even the most unlikely of sinners. So please now bless the study of your word. May the words of my mouth be pleasing and the meditation of our heart be glorifying to you. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Wouldn't life be much more peaceful if we were assured of positive outcomes before they happened? Uh, For your boss to give you news that your proposal at work was going to be accepted before you had even started writing it. Or that your doctor told you that your cancer diagnosis was going to completely go away before you had begun any form of treatment. Students, how awesome would it be if your teacher told you you were going to ace that test before you had even started studying for it? Obviously, we recognize that this is all wishful thinking, but such a scenario is indeed what is placed before us here in Joshua chapter 2. That even before 
the Israelites march into battle, they are being giving intel here that will help provide them the confidence and the assurance they need to be able to move forward in faith. Uh, But this intel comes in the most unusual and most unexpected of ways. And yet it will serve as a timely reminder for us today that we can confidently walk by faith, knowing that our sovereign God can be trusted. Right? That we can walk by faith with full and assured confidence, knowing that our God is in control. And that because of that, he can be completely trusted. Now, I will admit to you that upon initial glance, Joshua chapter 2 feels a little bit unnecessary. And that might sound like a surprise, but if you think about it, look at where we've been. Consider where we left off last week, where you have the people, after God's charge and motivation to Joshua, they're ready to go. They're anxious, they're confident, they're ready. And by the time we get to chapter 3, we see them mobilized, we see them ready to cross over. And in some ways, it feels like chapter 2 is just this gap chapter that's not really necessary. It feels like it takes a break between these two chapters of momentum. So the question is, why is it here? What purpose does it serve? I want you to see this morning that this story is filled with essential information that will only help to strengthen the trust of God's people as they prepare to move forward. And what we have really in chapter 2 here is a classic spy story. I don't know if anybody here likes spy movies or spy novels, but they make for some really good entertainment. Uh, So today, we're going to walk back through this spy story, and I'm going to provide some color commentary on this mission, because what's at the heart of every good spy story? A good mission. And so we're going to consider some important principles after we walk back through this here, but let's let's look at this through the lens of of a good spy story here, and let's begin with phase one, which we'll call Mission Accepted. Mission accepted there in verse 1. We see here Joshua comes to two men with a mission, should they choose to accept it, which they do. And the mission before them here is that they are to go into the land and spy it out, but specifically their target is not the entirety of the land. They are not going for a long period. Their specific target is Jericho. Jericho is the first major city, the first major target across the river. And the question is, why should they do this? I mean, if God is giving them the land, why is it necessary to spy it out? And we're not really given an answer here. We don't have a a full confidence as to why they are doing this. Joshua, we know, is not rebuked for this decision. We have to understand that these people were still doing their best to act and to not be passive in their faith, right? Just because God says something is going to happen doesn't mean that they're just sitting back and just saying, okay, just make it happen then. But I think we also understand and we also see here a little bit of redemption, right? After all, what had happened 40 years earlier when they were told to spy out the land, They came back with a report that was far from confidence. 
a report that did not inspire greater trust and dependence upon God, right? And so this is a chance for them to respond in faith rather than fear. And notice that Joshua doesn't send 12 spies this time. How many does he send? Two. I find that kind of ironic because how many spies did it take to believe the last time? Two, right? We also see that the nature of this mission is one where being a little bit more discreet and uh, less obvious is important, so less people, that's a good idea. So these men infiltrate Jericho, they sneak in, and they make their way to the home of a prostitute. I don't know about you, but on the surface, that seems questionable. It seems sketchy on their part. But nothing in the text and nothing outside of this uh, tells us that anything is questionable here. In fact, the type of house that they go to here where they're lodging would have been more like a hotel slash tavern where all the rough crowd would gather to talk. In many ways, it reminds us of that lovely establishment in Disney's Fairy tale story tangled, known as the Snuggly Duckling, where all the rough crowd gather to talk, right? Just far less Disney friendly. This is a great place to receive intel, to hear about the people, to hear about the town, the city here and its inhabitants. So on the surface, this mission seems to be going according to plan. They've made it in. They've made it to the heart of the city. They're gathering information. All is well, right? Wrong. Because as we see here in verses 2 through 3, their mission has already been compromised. This mission has been compromised. We see in verses 2 through 3, what is, by the way, especially for you kids in here, what is the first rule of spy school? First rule of spy school is what? Don't get caught. Don't get caught. Go undetected. Keep a low profile. Don't raise suspicions. And in God's providence, Joshua sent two poor spies into the land because their cover is quickly blown. Uh, We read here in verse 2, it was told to the king of Jericho, behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. We don't know how, we don't know why, but somehow they become aware of this breach. God apparently had providential reasons for this, as we will soon see, and it sets the stage for the greater purpose of their mission later on. But for now, these men need an out. Because according to verse 3, they are being pursued by the king of this great fortress. So what can they do? They're trapped. Uh, I don't know exactly how many people are in Jericho, but it's all of them versus two. Not very good odds. All for them seems lost until we see the most unlikely of characters step in in verses 4 through 7, where we see that this mission goes concealed. This mission suddenly becomes concealed. Verses 4 through 7, of all people, we find that Rahab, the sexually compromised belle of Jericho, steps into action. Remember, Rahab is a Canaanite, a woman of pagan descendants, an enemy of these spies. 
Her profession as a prostitute could have been either her means of a living or it could have been an act of worship because we know in the ancient culture amongst the Canaanite gods that it was not uncommon for there to be cult prostitutes. So any of this is certainly possible for Rahab and her upbringing. And if anyone seems unlikely to help them, it would be this woman. And yet she does something surprising here. She does not sell them out, but rather hides them out. She has them go to the roof and covers them with big stalks of flax, which, by the way, this is your hide-and-seek tip of the day. Apparently, big stalks of flax are a good option for you if you're a hide-and-seek fan. But she doesn't just hide them here. She recognizes that these men are still going to need an escape plan. It might delay things for now, but it doesn't solve the ultimate issue. She needs to divert the troops away from the city because it's only a matter of time before they get discovered. So this is where she runs what those in the football world would call a trick play. She feeds them a story. She says, true, these, these men were here, but they've already left. They've gone. They, you just missed them. But if you go quickly, I bet you can catch up to them. She does what any of you dog owners might know about is called the fake ball throw, right? You got the tennis ball in your hand. Dog's ready for it. And you act like you throw it, but then you put it behind their back. And what do they do? They take off running for it when the ball secretly is behind your hand all the time. And according to verse 7, the men of the city bite. They take this bait and they go off on a pointless search mission to find these spies behind enemy lines. Now let me ask you, if you're the two Israelite spies, how do you feel like things are going at this point? How do you think this mission is going in your minds? Uh, sure, your lives have been spared for the moment, but, but now what? This mission needs a miracle, and that's exactly what they get in verses 8 through uh, 14, where we see the mission revived, where we see the mission revived. And the question in the mind of the spies throughout this whole ordeal must have been, why? Why? Why would this Canaanite woman, this shady lady who is supposed to be an enemy of God, why would she help them? And it's in these verses that we get that answer. This is where the mission that feels like a complete flop moves to a great success. It is revived on account of the remarkable testimony of this lady because here they receive all the intel necessary to assure them that the victory has already been won. And her intel reveals two very important details to these spies. First of all, that the battle has already been won. Wouldn't it be nice to know that before you even go into war? That the battle has already been won. I mean, look at the encouragement that she offers in verses 9 through 11. 
She said to them, I know that the Lord has given you the land and the fear of you has fallen upon all of us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who are beyond the Jordan whom you devoted to destruction. I mean, think about this for just a moment. She goes so far as to say that we have heard about what your God did when he delivered your people from Egypt. Can I remind you, church, how long ago was that? That was over 40 years earlier. 40 years ago. And they're still quaking in their boots about it. Uh, Rahab's assessment of things is that Jericho is afraid. Their hearts melt like butter in a microwave. That sinking feeling that you get when you realize all is lost. Have you ever been to an audition for maybe a musical part or, uh, or an acting role and you were to see the person who's going before you and they just nail it and you just feel that sinking feeling? Or if you've been in the sports world and you've watched game film of the team that you're going to play and you look at them and you're just like, ain't no way. <laughs> There's no possibility. The spirits of Jericho have already been crushed. But not only has the battle already been won, Rahab's report also contains another encouraging tidbit and an unexpected detail They've actually gained another ally. And that ally is Rahab herself. Notice what Rahab has to say about Israel and her God. Verse 11, as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord, your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Notice, Rahab here actually refers to Israel's God as Yahweh. That is the personal, relational name of God. And not only is he God, he is God in heaven, above, and on earth beneath. And that might not sound like a very uh, unique thing, but that confession there that God rules over everything, including all areas of the, the air and the land. Remember, this is a Canaanite culture where they had gods for all these things. And for her to say this is to make an exclusive claim that he is the one true God amongst all. In fact, that phrase, in the heavens above and on the earth beneath, have only been used three times in the Bible up to this point each time making a claim to the sovereignty, the absolute exclusive sovereignty of God. We see it in Exodus 20 verse 4 in what we call the Ten Commandments, that you're not making an image of anything in the heavens above or on the earth beneath. Deuteronomy 4.39, which you might notice was on your cover verse of your worship folder this morning. Know therefore today and lay it at your heart that the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. There is no other. The point, Rahab is forsaking her past. Rahab is leaving behind what she once was to pursue the one true sovereign God. She is surrendering her former life to Yahweh. What encouragement for these people 
to not only know that they have already defeated the enemies of Jericho, but that they even have allies on the inside. And this is where we go from seeing the mission revived to the mission rescued in verses 15 to 21. As if Rahab's help up to this point wasn't enough, she carries it through to the end by helping them escape the city. She lowers them down by a rope since her home was uniquely built into the side of the walls of this city. But before doing so, she strikes a deal with these men. And rightfully shows. She, she pleads for mercy from them by seeking deliverance for her and her family when the Israelites eventually attack the city. And the men, rightfully so, because of this good gesture, this good deed, provide this. They agree to this plan and they give her a scarlet cord to tie outside her window, a special marker that would be clearly distinguished to make sure the Israelites knew that this portion of the wall, this portion of Jericho was to be off limits to destruction. That those who were in this room, who were in this portion of the wall, they would be delivered. For Rahab and her family, it was like their own Passover event, like the Israelites had experienced in Egypt. It set apart their home so that the judgment of God would pass over them and allow them to be delivered. And so these men are let down, and after they leave, we see there in verse 21, then she sent them away, and they departed, and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. She did not delay in taking advantage of this opportunity for greater deliverance for her and her family. And we see the story conclude in verses 22 to 24 with what we would say is mission accomplished. Mission accomplished. These men hide out for a few days in the hills before returning to Joshua with their information. And while it was far from what we would call a smooth mission, we can certainly say that it accomplished a great purpose. Because the report they give to Joshua is this, God has given us this land. He is truly leading this mission what they should have reported and what they should have trusted in 40 years earlier has now been presented as clear as day. Our God can be trusted. Yes, the people of the land are big. The walls of Jericho, they are big. The scope of the land and the size of this mission that is before us, it is big. But our God is bigger. But we see and we recognize that our God is bigger. The time is now. Let's go. And so the stage is set for the Israelites to finally, after all these years, mobilize in chapters 3 and 4 to move into the land. So what would the Lord have us take away from this story today? This is a marvelous story that has plenty for us to take away this morning. So I want to look at a few points together as we recap this story this morning. The first is this, that God's promises are certain even when we are not. That God's promises are certain even when we are not. 
This story shows us how God was gracious to the people of Israel, even when they may have been filled with uncertainties of how things were going to work out. I mean, remember, God has not given a lot of detail up to this point about how they are going to do this mission, about how this is all going to work. There is no game plan. There is no strategy. There has just been promise that this is going to happen. In many ways, this story reminds us of what we would see in a book later, in the book of Judges, with Gideon. If you remember the story of Gideon and his 300 troops, the Lord tells him before the battle with the thousands of Midianites, if you are still uncertain, if you are still fearful, go into the enemy camp, hear the message that I'm going to give to you, and let that be your assurances. And sure enough, he goes into the camp and he discovers that the hearts of the people have already been defeated. And Gideon, in that newfound strength, is able to lead these men into a profound and marvelous victory the next day. So much of faith, church, is trusting God's promises. It's to trust what he has said. And Joshua 2 reinforces that theme, which is going to be repeated time and time again. We're going to sound like a broken wheel in here over the next few months. So much of the battle of faith is believing in those promises, especially when we are weak, when we are fearful, or when we are uncertain. And I don't know about you, but that happens almost on a daily basis for most of us. That when life suddenly gets hard, how quick we are to forget God's goodness to us. That when we're tempted to sin, how we can be quick to forget that God promises us that to trust in him and to rely on him is to better to partake than, than to partake in any type of self-gratification now. God's promises remain certain in even when we as his people are not. But secondly, we need to be quick to see the sovereign hand of God in our lives. This story is full of nuggets that remind us that God is in control. We see that in the spies and their failure and how that results in this interaction with Rahab that they wouldn't have had otherwise. How the word of the Israelites and their triumphs had persisted for more than 40 years. Only a sovereign God can preserve a message like that. We're going to learn in a moment how Rahab plays a bigger role in God's redemptive story. I mean, every twist and turn of this account reminds us that God is in control. That we can walk by faith because we know our God controls all things. Why can we trust his promises? Why do, believe, why do we believe that he is good? Because as Rahab acknowledged, he is Yahweh. He is God of heaven above and on earth beneath. The world and everything in it is subject to his authority. And so I want to encourage you today, look at your life. Look at the past. Look at the present. Look at everything that has led you to where you are. And take note of all the ways you have seen the hand of God lead you, both in the good times and in the bad. And I assure you, you cannot help but see the fingerprints of the Almighty God all over your life. <clears throat> Third, faith comes by hearing. And this is not an a novel point to us, obviously. 
But how is it possible that Rahab the prostitute of all people believed in Yahweh? Believed in this message? Because she heard. Because the message of Yahweh went forth. Notice what she said there in verse 9. I know, in other words, I believe that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen on us. For verse 10, for we have heard. We have heard. Romans 10, 14 reminds us that faith is not possible apart from God's word being heard. Faith is certainly a supernatural gift that God uses to transform the human heart, but he does not do it out of a void. He doesn't do it out of nothingness. He uses his word. He uses the message that goes forth from his people. And if anyone is going to walk by faith, then they must hear the good news of deliverance and respond to it the way that Rahab did. And the nature of that response is important here because do you notice that Rahab and the whole city of Jericho heard the same message? You realize that, right? Rahab and everybody in Jericho heard the exact same thing. So the natural question for us then is this, what's the difference in how they responded and that leads us to our next point, that fear will cause you to either run from God or to seek refuge in God. To either run from God or to ultimately find refuge in that very God. And we see that in verses 9 and 10. Rahab tells of how the people of Jericho had seen all that Israel's God had done for them. All these miracles, all these victories, all these different forms of deliverance. And fear had fallen upon everyone. But this is where we must see that Rahab's fear looked different. After all, notice that no one else was standing there with Rahab that day. Jericho's response, which was fear, was good, and it was appropriate, but it was also incomplete. Biblical fear calls for you to respond by drawing closer to God, not running from him. Fear runs to the source as the only means of deliverance in the very same way that Rahab did. Kind of like we just sung earlier about the Rock of Ages, right? Where do we run to when we recognize that we are hopeless and dependent? To the Rock of Ages where we can hide ourselves in him. Yes, Yahweh was powerful and vengeful, but Rahab also saw that he was good and merciful. And the question for you today is this, what kind of fear do you have? What kind of fear do you have of God? And what have you done with what you have heard? Have you run further away from God? Have you pushed him further away? Or have you seen him as the only means of deliverance and sought refuge in him? We see in Rahab the biblical pattern here of fear, forsaking, 
and finding refuge. Her knowledge of the Lord drove her to fear. That fear drove her to forsake her old ways. And that forsaking led her to finding refuge in God alone. Which leads us to our next point that your past does not define you. God does. Your past does not define you. God does. There are a lot of details that people get worked up in this story concerning about Rahab. She was a Canaanite. She was a prostitute. She even lied. Oh man, how much ink is spilled over the lie of Rahab in books and commentaries. And you know how much is given to Rahab's lie the rest of the Bible? You know how much God cares about her lie the rest of the Bible? Answer, zilch. It's funny, those same people are not quick to point out the lies of people like Abraham or even the deception of the Israelites later in chapter 8 when they throw a trick play at the Canaanites. You see, Rahab's legacy is not one of her past. It's not one of her deception. Rahab's legacy is one of faith. We see that throughout the Bible. Hebrews chapter 11 reminds us that Rahab did not perish with those who were in the land, but because she gave refuge to spies, she was delivered. James chapter 2 reminds us that faith must be shown in its evidences and in its obedience. And that was shown in the way that Rahab hid the spies, that she gave them a welcome and sent the other people away. Now, you may say that both these passages still speak to the fact that she was a prostitute, though, right? She can't escape that. Well, right, you are. But notice that the triumphing, triumphing characteristic each and every time Rahab is referenced is not her wicked past, but the faith that moved her forward. Yes, God knows for all of you who you once were, but any reference to your past does not serve as a reminder that you are a failure with flaws. It serves as a reminder that you are a trophy of God's immense and immeasurable grace. It reminds us that God doesn't care who you once were or what you have done. What matters most is that you are clinging to his means of deliverance. And for you here today, that means a deliverance is none other than Christ Jesus. For those of you who are united to Jesus by faith, the scripture says that you are a new creation. Your old self has gone. You have been born again and you are new. You are not identified by your past, but rather your identity is found in Christ. That when God sees you, he does not see the imperfect Rahab. Or take your pick of any of the shady characters from Hebrews chapter 11. What he sees is the perfect righteousness of his beloved son that has delivered you ultimately from yourself. And speaking of deliverance, this story is a perfect reminder for us today that God's grace provides a means of deliverance. And this is where we'll end this morning. That God's grace provides a means of deliverance. And I think we see that in three different ways in this story. First, we see it with the spies via Rahab. Or we could even say the Israelites as a whole via Rahab. And we've seen it already, but this whole story has shown us how God used the most unlikely means to assure his people through a most unusual rescue plan. 
This deliverance by Rahab preserved the lives of two men, but it has also preserved the spirits of a nation that was already susceptible to doubt. But there's a cool interplay here because not only did Rahab rescue a nation, but she in return received deliverance from them. We see the second type of salvation here, this Rahab via Israel, that much of Rahab's faith was based on a trust in things really that were yet to come. After all, she had to trust that these men would save her when they returned for battle, right? That they would be true to their word. She anticipated something that was in the future that held all kinds of uncertainties to it, kind of like the Israelites were doing. And yet she still responded in faith, believing, trusting, tying the cord to her window with the full expectation that she would be delivered as promised. That's hope. That's biblical hope there. In many ways, it was a hope that uh, it was a hope that the best was yet to come, that the full experience of her deliverance was still in the future, but it was still certain. That sounds an awful lot like the Christian life, doesn't it? Believing, that what, believing what God has said and that the fullness of our deliverance is sure, but it is still yet to come. That we are trusting in something more complete and better down the road. That God will do away with this sin-cursed, canonized world and deliver us into our perfect and forever home. Oh, but you, but that takes a lot of trust, doesn't it, on daily life. Rahab's faith is a testimony for all of us today, and her deliverance, though future, was certain. And we're going to see that later in chapter 6, how she becomes a part of God's chosen and blessed people. But even more amazing is the final aspect of deliverance that this story teaches us, and it is the ultimate deliverance of this world provided through Jesus Christ, who we could also say is provided via Rahab. This is where we see that the story of Joshua 2 is so much bigger than God's plan for Israel. While God has a special love for his covenant people, he still has a soft spot for the outsider. Rahab's story shows us that this is more than just a book about Israel getting her promised land. It is a story about a God who works in marvelous and unexpected ways. And it gives us a glimpse of God's love for humanity and how one day he is going to open the doors of salvation to all people, to Gentiles, even like Rahab. In other words, it gives us a glimpse into God's grand redemptive plan. Why is Joshua 2 so important? Why is it so pivotal to the rest of the Bible, I would dare say? Because Rahab's act of faith did more than just preserve the lives of two spies that day. Her act of faith was used to preserve the family line that would one day lead to the better Joshua and true deliverer, not just of Israel, but of the entire world. Because we see in Matthew chapter 1, verse 5, how God used Rahab and grafted her into the family line of King David, who was none other than the great, 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 add several more greats on there, grandfather 
of Jesus Christ himself. Translation, without Rahab, we do not get Jesus. By delivering the spies, she in some way foreshadowed the greater and perfect deliverance that her future offspring would bring to all of humanity. Not a deliverance from a military army, nor a victory of a heavily fortified city, but a deliverance over the curse of sin and a victory over the final enemy of death itself. It is the faith of this imperfect woman that preserved the greater storyline of the entire Bible for which we, along with the Israelites of Joshua's day, can say, hallelujah, what a savior. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you and your sovereignty are far more amazing than we could ever hope or imagine that in this marvelous text, you have shown us, Lord, how you are a God of deliverance, a God of salvation, and because of that, you can be trusted. That when life is hard, when we are weak, when we are fearful, when we are tempted to stray, your promises remind us that you are good, you are worthy, and you are in control. You are better than anything this world can provide. And we thank you for the hope and deliverance that you have given to us in Jesus Christ. That, Lord, you do not look at us for who we once were, but in Christ, you see us for who you have made us to be. Because of that, we can move forward in faith. And I pray for those who are here this morning who maybe feel like a Rahab, who know their past, who know what they've done and feel, Lord, maybe like they cannot be forgiven. I pray that today would provide hope to them to know that the Lord in his sovereignty loves to save and redeem the most unusual and most unlikely of sinners. So thank you, Lord, for the reminder of your grace today. Thank you that you are a God who can be trusted, we pray in Jesus' name.